Good morning, church. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Joe, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm a, I'm really excited and uh, humbled for what God's what God might do this morning. Um, we're in the final week of a series called Good Questions. Um, and you can find the list of these good questions on the back of your update if you've got it. It looks like a little journal on the back. There's a whole list of them. Um, and on our website, uh, centralcity.co slash podcast, you can find ongoing daily devotions and uh, scripture readings and some additional reflection questions around each one of these questions. So we've been asking 21 questions over, the next, over these 21 days together as a community. Now today, I don't want to talk so much about the, the, the third section of questions as much as I want to talk about um, why I think these questions are so important, especially in their original context. Uh, to do that, I want to start with just a really simple story. Um, it may or it may not uh, surprise you uh, that when I was uh, growing up, I always tried to be a good kid. Uh, it would be an interesting survey question whether that surprises you or not. Um, but most of you, uh, most of us in our family were. I'm one of seven kids, so we had to. It was just chaos if we didn't find a way to behave. And so, um, but with seven kids, my parents were, you know, the odds were against them, and, it, and they were bound to just have at least one kid um, who didn't want to behave, and, and they did. Um, we all caused trouble from time to time, but there was one of my siblings specifically who was a little more dramatic than the rest. His name's uh, Jeff. I'm going to sell him out. Um, I don't think he listens to the podcast, so it's okay. Um, he was getting into trouble as soon as I was old enough to remember. I remember when I was like probably in first or second grade, and I remember the day he got in trouble. He had, uh, my dad found a, a big box of cigarettes and stolen car parts in the loft of our barn. Um, that wasn't a particularly uh, good day. I was too young to understand the context of why he stole those, although one of them, I guess, makes sense. The other might be worth money. Um, when we moved to a new community, I wonder if my parents maybe began to wonder if a new community would help Jeff kind of find his way again, a fresh start and all of that. Well, he didn't. He just found a new group of people to hang out with, and uh, his life continued to consist of drugs and alcohol, and as soon as he turned 18, he left the house. Um, he went on to go live on the streets, um, addicted to God knows what, and eventually uh, he was caught stealing a truck. I remember one time after the, all of this, he was telling me stories of living on the streets in a very rural community. He would go and find abandoned houses out in the country. Um, he told me, and I don't know if any of these stories are true, by the way, but he claimed to have taken an entire um, vending machine just so it had soda to drink for a couple of months. Um, that's quite the, that's quite the pro process of stealing a, a vending machine, um, and he can explain how if you're interested. Um, and, uh, and then also taking a tarp and putting it in the back of a truck and filling it up with water so you have a pool slash bathtub. Um, very, very ingenious, some, you know, rural living on the streets in the rural community. Well, he eventually got caught stealing a truck, and that landed him in prison for uh, nine months. And while he was in prison, he encountered God. Now, that's not especially unique because um, almost everyone who goes to the prison encounters God. It's just one of the things you do. There's kind of three people who are in prison, uh, three types of people in prison. This is the joke that some people in prison told me. You've got your, uh, you've got your lawyers, uh, your preachers, and your body lifters, and sometimes you're all three. And so it's just finding God is, is one of the things that happens in prison. So we didn't know if that actually meant anything would be different for my brother, but he eventually he got out of prison. He wasn't in there very long. And when he came out, I began to wonder, like, what would be different in his life? Well, he arrived home, and I ended up sharing a bedroom with him. And I'm glad to tell you that he was different. There was something significantly different about him. In fact, looking back, one of the most significant differences I noted in my brother's life was the fact that all of a sudden he paid attention to me. 
Strangely enough, I don't remember a single conversation with my older brother before he came out of prison, like a meaningful conversation. Like I, but afterwards, after he found God, there was something different. Like he cared about what was going on in my life. He cared about what was going on in the world. He, he asked me questions. He engaged in conversation. He paid attention. He shared his thoughts. His new faith created this sense of community in our life um, that I had never experienced with anyone before, I, before this point. And when he talked to me, I could tell that there was this energy to his faith. He was in love with God, and he was passionate about God. I mean, it was, friends, it was like 180 degree. I mean, he was still my brother Jeff. He was still covered in tattoos. He was still ornery as ever, and he still is to this day. He's a pain in the butt. But beyond his personality, there was a complete 180 change in how he approached life. Something about him deeper than his personality was different, deeper than his outward appearance. I remember distinctly the, the impact this had on my life. I, I, I was the good Christian kid, and I obeyed my parents for the most part, and I assumed that my behavior made me a Christian that my positive choices as a good person, living a life mostly free from sin, at least public sin, was, was the secret to being a good Christian. And that's what Christianity was all about, right? Christians are the well-behaved, well-dressed amongst us. But here was my brother. He messed up his life. He, he was in prison. He came out. He gave his life to God. And now there was something about him that seemed more Christian than me. And I have to be honest, I began in this season of my life exploring Christianity partially out of competition. I was like, wait a second. You can't be more, there's something about you with all of your mess ups that feels more Christian than me. And I've, I've tried to do it right all the time and I've never caused my parents any stress. I'm not sure that's how they would put it, but I, I tried. So I, I had to, I had to figure out what it was that set him apart, that, that made it different. Like his faith was different. Whatever it was, I wanted it. Because it was contagious, and it led me on this journey that, that, that began this season of my life where I searched out God more than I had ever searched in any other part of my life. I wanted what he had. Looking back, I realize now what it was that, what it was that made his faith so contagious. My brother had something that I didn't. And I didn't know what it was at the time, but I know what it is now. We call it grace. Grace. God's unmerited, undeserving love for us, grace. My brother had come to believe that, that God loved him no matter what, and that God wanted to give him his life back, that God had good things in store for him. My brother believed that God was powerful enough to do anything. He really believed this at this point, that God could do anything, and that God could change anyone, grace. And I wanted that grace. Even though I didn't know what it was, I wanted it. And oh, I wanted it so bad, I wanted to get his, my hands on as much of it as I could. I didn't know what it was or how to get it. And so I began to search. 
And I began to pray and I began to read and I began to share with others. And since then, I could say that over the years, the, the short number of years that I've been a Christian in the grand scope of the world, that, that the most significant thing I've ever learned about God or about life or about my purpose here in the world or about the universe, the, the ultimate question, the most, the most significant thing I have ever learned about anything that matters was on my pursuit of God's grace, which is what I want to talk about today. See, God had been drawing my brother even before he realized it, even when it didn't seem like anything was happening. My, my God had been drawing and pursuing my brother. And of course, God saved him as he does with those who are willing. But more than that, God was now beginning to change him. And that is God's grace. And God's grace plays out in these three ways in our lives. So it draws, it saves, and it changes. If you're taking notes, um, you're welcome to. These are some things that are worth mentioning. Can we, yeah, we'll put up on the screen. He draws, he saves, and he changes. So grace works out in three ways. I've seen it over and over again. So first, grace draws us, pulls us, pursues us. Jesus says it in John 6, 4. He says, no one can come to, the, to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. In order to know God and to come to God, we have to first be drawn to God. Now, we have to be enticed, romanced, pursued. God isn't someone we stumble upon. If you're like, man, in my faith, I was walking along and I just stumbled on God and I found God randomly, it might feel like you found God randomly, but what you don't realize is the years leading up to that moment, God was pursuing you, pursuing you. God was seeking after you. So God is pursuing us, and I believe that God is pursuing everyone. It's one of the things that makes us Wesleyan, in our theology, as it says in 1 Timothy 2.4, God wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God is drawing all people, whether they know it or not, whether they respond to it or not, God still in quiet voice is present and alive and pursuing all of us. I call this the hindsight 2020 grace because you don't ever see it until afterwards. You can't see it until afterwards, until you've, you've opened your eyes and you see the truth. But when you look back, you're like, man, even before I was a Christian, God was putting things into my place to bring me to this very moment. That God was pursuing me even before I was aware of it. So God draws. And then God's grace saves us. God's grace through Jesus Christ saves us from a life of sin and forgives us and washes us clean. Ephesians 2.8 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So we're born into sin and we continue to live in sin brokenness, alienation, separation. And that's what sin does. It separates us from all of our relationships, from our relationship with God and others and even ourselves. And without God, without God's saving grace, we would continue to live separated, isolated, broken, trapped. But God came and saved us from the power of sin, and so we've been forgiven. And we, and we can be forgiven if you want it. It's a gift. It's, you're, you can have it right now. It's, you, there's nothing you can do. You just can, all you have to do is receive it. It's completely free. Grace. Now, I find too many Christians stop right here. We view ourselves as nothing but sinners saved by grace, and we'll always be sinners saved by grace, and so we just are waiting for that day someday in the future when we, uh, you know, God makes all things right. In the meantime, I'm just going to deal with life as it is, as it comes to me. Um, so I'll just wait. God drew me. I can see that. God saved me. I obviously still have th some things that need to be changed, but you know what? We'll deal with those in the next life. I don't, I don't believe that's what Scripture teaches. Um, we don't have to wait to be made whole again. Saving grace isn't the end. It's meant to be the starting line. 
It's the beginning towards life of wholeness. Once God's grace saves us, God's grace begins to change us, as Paul explains in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm saved now, but now that I'm saved, the work can begin. God is sanctifying me. It's a fancy word for being made holy through and through, or as some translations put it, holy in every way, completely. The Greek word for here uh, for through and through is the same Greek word we get the word wholeness or whole. In other words, you're being made complete, not lacking anything. My whole spirit, my whole soul, my whole, everything that makes me me, even those hidden parts of my life, are being worked through in God's grace and being made whole, being created again in the way that we were meant to be, being brought back to life. And this isn't something that happens later in the next life. This is something that starts right now. This life begins for us today. Now, in the Christian world, in the theological world, we have $10 words for these. Um, and maybe you're familiar with them. The grace that draws us is provenient grace. The grace that saves us is what we call justifying grace. And the grace that changes us is called sanctifying grace. Provenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. And we need all three. God draws us, he saves us, and then he begins to change us. So today, I wanna focus on the third one the grace that changes us. That's what we've been talking about in this series of good questions, questions that God can use to begin to change us. And if I'm honest, if I'm really honest, this is the hardest grace to understand and to fully embrace. It's very tricky, it's very messy, and Christians have gotten it wrong and lived it out very poorly in the past. Because even with God's power to change, real change is hard, especially when we do it in community with other people who also need to change, isn't it? It's hard, but it's necessary. And friends, I have spent far too much of my life living as someone who's saved by grace, but not being willing to be changed by grace. I've lived as someone who, who knows they're forgiven, but hasn't allowed God to make me into someone new, to make me whole again, to, to make me complete. Think, think about it like this. Imagine a guilty drug addict. And because of his addiction, he's been um, caught stealing, and he's been caught lying, he's been caught uh, cheating people. This is very common, this happens all the time. And so he gets caught and he stands before a judge. Now imagine that this judge has the power to let him off the hook, to just offer him grace, unmerited favor, says, you know, here's what you've done wrong, but we're, we're gonna drop the charges or we'll put the charges on someone else or however you wanna look at it. But this guy goes to court and the judge says, you're off, you've been forgiven, right? So you stand before the judge, that's justifying grace. You've been set free. You're a free person. You don't have to pay the penalty of the crime anymore. There's no fear of punishment. Now, now here's the question. Does that mean that this addict is magically cured of his desire to do drugs? Just because he's been forgiven. That he'll never steal or lie or cheat anyone again. In other words, does being forgiven rehabilitate him or her? Now, honestly, maybe. Maybe like at first, he might be so grateful, she might be so grateful or overwhelmed by that gift of grace and freedom that, he, that they want to just you know, set things right. And at first, maybe he or she will try. 
I've seen this over and over again. When you experience this unmerited kind of grace where God just forgives you of everything you've done, you want to live differently. But on your own, how long does that usually last? A week? A month? Maybe? A little longer? A couple of hours? It, it, it might help, but it, it doesn't fix the problem. He's been set free, but now he's been set free. He has to learn how to live as a free person. That's the difference between justifying grace and sanctifying grace. It's the difference between being saved and being changed. It's the difference between Jesus being your Savior and Jesus becoming your Lord. Because when Jesus is your Savior, he can wipe your, the slate clean and forgive you of everything. But, but then slowly over time, we begin to surrender more and more and more of our life to God, and Jesus becomes more and more our Lord. It's like when Jesus looks at someone in the Gospels, you can see the story over and over again. He looks at somebody and he says to them, you are forgiven. And they know they're forgiven. They feel it in the depths of who they are. They have no doubt that God has just wiped the slate clean. And then after that, Jesus says, now go and sin no more. You've been forgiven, so now live differently. And you can't do that on your own. You need God and you need grace. And as, G as Alyssa talked about last week, you need the Holy Spirit who works in the midst of this. So that leads us to a half-truth. You know what a half-truth is? It's something that's sort of true, but not entirely. There's a lot of half-truths in the world. We could look at a lot of them. Um, but there's one that I've, I think that is the most challenging to accept as a half-truth. In fact, once I say it and I name it as a half-truth, it'll probably make most of you very uncomfortable every time I say it and I recognize it as a half-truth, it makes me uncomfortable. Now, people say that it's true, but it's not entirely true. But as with all half-truths, there's an element of it that makes it sort of true, sort of not. So here's, here's the half-truth that I want to share with you. Maybe you've heard someone say this. You're fine just the way you are. You're fine just the way you are. It's a nice thing to say. We hope it's true. But what if it's not? What if, it's, what if you're not fine just the way you are? What if it wasn't entirely true? We learn that God draws us and he saves us and he changes us. So the first two would suggest, can we put that slide up, the draw, save, change? Yep, perfect. The first two we see there and we say, yeah, we're fine just the way we are. There's nothing you have to do. To, God is pursuing you while you were yet sinners. <laughs> before you did anything right, before you were, you could have been living the worst life possible, committing the worst crimes possible, and God is still pursuing you and saying, I want to be in a relationship with you. It doesn't matter what you've done. God would say, I forgive you. He loved you while we, while we were still messing up. So the first two would say, you know what? You can experience this just the way you are. But the second one seems to suggest, you know what? Maybe there's some things that now that you're in the family of God, you could be doing a little differently. Even with God's grace drawing us and saving us, if God's grace wants to change us, then we have to recognize that there might be some things in our life that aren't fine the way they are. That we might be in need of some change that you might be in need of something to change. We're unfinished. We're a work in progress. Most of you don't need to be told this, right? You know this. I don't have to convince you that, that you don't have it all together. 
we struggle with it every day. In fact, one of our great problems is that we think too low of ourselves. We think we're garbage or we think our sin. Uh, we sin God in our insecurity. And then we realize that low self-esteem, uh, and we realize that that low self-esteem is a product of sin, and then we feel even worse about it. And we get into this cycle, this downward spiral of just feeling bad about feeling bad about feeling bad. Oh, what a wretched sinner I am. Who will save me? And so let me tell you, and I, I hope that you, you can hear me, I don't bring up this fact that we have room for growth to make you feel bad about yourself. I know some will, and that's a sad reality and a casualty to this kind of message, but that is not my intent. Well, once the Apostle Paul um, was writing a letter to a church in Corinth, and, and if you read the letter, I mean, they just did terrible things. This church did not have it together. They were, they were committing crimes against each other financially, sexually. There was all kinds of nasty. It was just not a, it was not a healthy church. And he writes to them, and he says at one point, as he's going through this laundry list of problems, he says, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. He says, I don't want to shame you, but to warn you, the word here for warn is made up of two Greek words, and it could be literally translated to place on one's mind. He says, I'm not trying to, to make you feel bad. I just, I just want you to think about this. Now, that's easier to say, but it's hard to believe, and I get that. So let me explain. More than anything, we are loved no matter what we've done. Even the church in Corinth, with all of its mistakes, Paul is bold enough to say in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 5, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him you have been enriched in every way, even with all of their problems. God's grace has you covered. You're in if you want it. It's a gift. You can receive it right now if you want it. You, could, you can't earn it. No matter what you've done, you, you would never deserve it, which means God's grace in God's community, you are accepted, you are welcome no matter who you are or what you've done, and I want you to know that God loves you, and that God is drawing you, and God wants to save you. And if you don't know that, we need to start there first. But for the rest of us, the rest of us who have chosen to submit our lives to God, then we need to recognize that we need, that God's grace has another level. We have to embrace that next level and, and allow God's grace to begin to change us because while we are certainly loved just the way we are, that doesn't mean we're fine just the way we are because there's a difference. Now, if by telling you that you aren't fine just the way you are causes a shock to go down your spine and you feel yourself clamming up, then you, like me, have some issues to look into. There's something wrong there. Because if we're honest, we know we're not fine. We have work to do. Sin is a problem that we need saving from. Look at the world with all of its violence and its selfishness and its greed and its consumerism. We needn't go so far as looking at other people. We could just look at our own life, our attitudes, our behaviors, our mistakes to know that there's a problem. That the world, my world even, is not as it should be. We are not as we should be. So I don't think I need to convince anyone that sin is a problem, that the world is a broken place. It's the one thing I think most people agree on, that there's problems. 
that the world is a broken place, that we have a tendency to forsake God and to fail to love ourselves and God. I don't think I need to, to I don't think we get uncomfortable because, it, because it's true. We know it's true. I think we get uncomfortable because I'm pointing it out. You say, I don't need to convince you that we have work to do. I need to convince you that it's someone's job to point it out. Bill Hybels um, from Willow Creek Church, uh, it was the host of the Leadership Summit, he said something really interesting when I was there a couple years ago. Um, now, what's even more interesting is some of the things that have come out about Bill Hybels. I won't say much about it, but if you're familiar with the news, he retired early because of charges of misconduct and the way that he's interacted with women in his church. I'm going to share his quote because it actually, strangely and ironically, his behavior supports it even more so. He said in this leadership summit, he said that um, according to a recent study, everyone has at least 3.4 blind spots. That we all have these areas in our lives that are not as they should be, but we can't see them. Now, weaknesses, tendencies, fears, bad habits, etc., misconduct, and they're of the sort that we can't see them. Now, some of you are thinking through your blind spots and trying to wonder if you have 3.4 and you're thinking through all the things that maybe you're a little off in your life and you're like, I can come up with one or two, but not four, not three. Like, you can't see them? Really? That's how they're defined, friends. You can't see them. You probably need someone to point them out or you might never see them. I'm suggesting that there are blind spots in our life. The church in Corinth had blind spots, and Paul said, uh, as the founding pastor who considered them children, he says, I tell you things not to shame you, but that you might be warned. I want you to know. I want you to think about this. I, want, I need you to wrestle with this because this is plain to everyone on the outside. So let's go with this assumption that there might be some things in your life that you can't see and let's assume that you want to grow spiritually, that you want to be a better dad or a better wife or a better spouse or a better business person or even a better friend, which means you need someone in your life to point those things out. And when you do, if you ever allow that to happen in your life, friends, amazing things can happen. One of the great movements of God happened in England in the 1700s. It's a movement that we're still part of today as a Methodist church. But in 1738, John Wesley was a pastor in the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and he uh, experienced a church service where he said that his heart was strangely warmed, and from that point on, he fell in love with God. He experienced grace in a way he never experienced. He preached differently, he, and he began to lead a movement, a movement that became known as the Methodist movement. But over the 50 years, over the next 50 years from when Wesley f- had that encounter with God and to his death, Wesley watched God do these amazing things. And by 1791, at his death, the movement had grown to the thousands. In fact, just to give you a picture of how big this movement was, here's some numbers. In England, he had organized 294 preachers and 71,668 members. Then in America, which they had taken the movement to America, he organized 198 preachers and 43,265 numbers. Over the course of the second half of his life, when he had this great awakening, the movement grew to over 100,000 people. 
that would be larger than any megachurch in America today. And what's so interesting is he did it without electronic communication, Facebook, big screens, or a praise band. In fact, he didn't have it almost, he didn't use large gatherings at all. This movement was led by people in small groups. Because John Wesley believed that if God did more than just save us, that God also was in the business of changing us, and that sometimes sin is so sneaky we can't see it for ourselves, so we have to enter into community where people can point it out to us in a loving and grace-filled way, that, it, that then people would begin growing in ways that they had never grown before. And so John Wesley organized people into small groups. Now, he didn't call it small groups. He called it class meetings. But he would organize people into class meetings, and they were like small groups. They'd, they didn't just have Bible studies, though. They were something entirely different. We've all, maybe, many of you have been part of Bible studies. That's not what these were. There's nothing wrong with studying the Bible together. We do that in our small groups. But these were something much more significant. Here's how one of the early American Methodist leaders explained it. He said, um, and here's a direct quote, We have no doubt... But meetings of Christian brethren and sisters for the exposition of scripture tests may be attended with their advantages. I love this old English because you have to think about it for a second. In other words, he's saying this. There is a great benefit to spending time with other Christians and talking about scripture and praying together. There's a benefit. It's a good thing to do. But he goes on though. He says this. But the most profitable exercise of any is a free inquiry into the state of the heart. A small group with one purpose. Not just scripture, not just prayer, not just talking about something, but talking about what's going on in our life. A free inquiry into the state of the heart. Have you ever told somebody, hey, you have permission to do a free inquiry into the state of my heart? They gathered together in groups of eight to 12 and they talked about their spiritual lives. They searched each other's hearts because we as Christians tend to know far more than we practice. I don't know if you knew that. Now you know that. You can increase your knowledge even more. We know far more than we practice. And they believed God could change them through and through completely. And so they talked about how God was changing them from week to week. Now, how did they do this? Well, simple. They gathered together, and they would engage in a, in a list of short and simple, intentional list of questions. And you can probably guess what those questions were. They were really good questions. If you flip your update over, you can see them, all 21 of them, questions that they would ask each other. See, we, we give you these questions, and we've even put the whole theme around as a journal and personal reflection and time with God. And so we've given them to you as reflection questions. Their original use was discussion questions. A little different. Can you imagine being in a group of people where you say to them, will you please, you know, every week ask me these kinds of questions? Was Jesus real to me this week? Not just internally reflecting, but engaging in community where people can ask challenging questions like this. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. As, as intense as these questions are, I encourage you to read through them. They're still great reflection questions. They're even better discussion questions. Although I will say, this is an aside, when I've been in groups where we discuss these questions, you know what often happens? People like to discuss the nature of the question than answer it honestly. So I, I've been in a lot of groups where they'll talk about why it, maybe it's not a good question. <laughs> and we have this tendency, we want to talk about something out here, content. We don't want to talk about what's going on in here with other humans. 
And this is true more today than it probably has ever been with the way social media is impacting our relationships. We don't want to talk about what's going on. We don't trust people enough for that. So we're going to talk about the nature of something out here, content-based questions, not what's going on in our actual spiritual life and our relationship with God. But here's the thing. With these small group questions, these class meetings, as he called them a long time ago in the 1700s, these were the base-level questions. They got harder. Do you want to see how they got harder? Of course you do. Well, you don't have a choice. We're going to do it anyways. He not only organized people into small groups, he organized people into accountability groups. Let's put up that slide. Accountability groups. Now, these were gender-specific usually and often specific to a specific stage of life. So often married men would be with married men and single men with single men and et cetera, just because of the nature of these kinds of questions often required that. Now, he didn't call them accountability groups, but that's what they were. He called them band meetings. But they were accountability groups. And the purpose was simple, to search even deeper into someone's heart for the sin that they might have missed and couldn't talk about in their small group. Because there are some things that can't be dealt with in a group of mixed people of 12, you know, 12 or more. But in an even smaller group of similar life experience, we could meet and we could dig even deeper. Now, this group wasn't for everyone. This group wasn't even open to anyone. You couldn't just show up to a meeting like this. You needed to be mature enough in your faith to be willing to grow in your faith at this level. So there were entrance requirements for this group. It was not an inclusive group. You had, to, you had to answer a series of questions and say yes to them. In order to say yes to them, you had to say yes to questions like this. Do you desire to be told your faults? Do you desire that every one of us should tell you from the time to time whatsoever is in his hearts concerning you? Some of you are thinking, I don't want anyone doing that. <laughs> Do you desire that in doing this, we should come as close as possible, that we should cut the quick, I love this old language, and search your heart to the bottom? You see, you had to want it. That's exactly why I like these questions. They said, do you desire this? If you didn't desire it, don't go to the group, because that's what the group was going to do. If you didn't want it, then you're in the wrong place. It's not going to be good for you. It's going to be cause more harm than good. So do you want it? And I promise you this. You won't want it unless you can first understand the power of God's grace. Grace has to come before accountability, which is why there are four questions before these that you also needed to answer yes to before you could even consider being in a group like this, before you could even consider showing your faults to someone. These questions were, one, have you the forgiveness of sins? of your sins. Two, have you peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't, let's work on that first. Have you the witness of God's spirit with your spirit that you are a child of God? John Wesley was very passionate about this. He believed that as a Christian, we should reach a place where God's spirit and our spirit, who God is and who we are, wraps up in this sense and we experience this great sense of security because you know you're a child of God and that you're, that you're, you're good. You've been, you've been claimed. And if you've reached that place, have you? Is the love of God shed abroad in your heart? In other words, to benefit from this kind of accountability, you need to be confident of forgiveness and, and peace, that you're a child of God, and that God's love is real to you. Because if you aren't confident of these accountability groups, maybe you've been a part of one, and maybe it was even toxic. Because if this isn't true, accountability groups will do more damage than they will good. There needs to be no doubt that ultimately God wants good things for you and that you are fully loved and that you are mature in your faith and you understand the complexities of life and the complexities of brokenness. You need to trust in grace before you trust in accountability. 
So if you've been wondering whether it's worth it, this kind of relationship, friends, it is worth it. <laughs> oh, it's, it's worth it because you're worth it. You were created by God and loved by God, and the change that God wants to bring in your life is so that you might become the person God created you to be. We have to be confident in, in God's love because without that, it's just going to turn into a small group that's looking down on each other and maybe even manipulating each other, and that's not gonna help anyone. But if you trust in God's grace enough that, that there, there won't be anything you can share or anything anyone can share that, that, you'll, that, that will make you question what God can do in and through them. So the Methodist movement saw thousands of people come to faith in God, and they did it by inviting people who claimed to follow Jesus into groups that they could be challenged to actually start living like Jesus. The most significant growth in my life happened in groups like these. It's happened in small groups, in accountability groups, where we are actually talking about what God is doing in our life. I, I was recently in a group like this with some pastors, and um, it was so beautiful because they, they never allowed a surface answer to go unchecked. They, they always challenged me to share more and to dig deeper into what was really going on in my own spiritual walk and the things that were broken and, and out of place in my own life and in my own heart. And, and they, they did it in such a loving and graceful way. I, up to that point, I wasn't even sure this was possible. <laughs> I wasn't sure there was mature and loving Christians enough to engage in this kind of vulnerability. But I, I joined this group of pastors a while ago, and they began to challenge. And I, I experienced the most significant spiritual growth of my life because I engaged in heartfelt, sincere conversation about what's really going on in my life. So you have on your update all 21 questions. And you can just continue to use them to reflect on your own spiritual life. But I wonder, is there someone in your life who you trust enough to ask these questions to you? If, if not, if, if there isn't anyone you are close enough to ask these kinds of questions, I wonder what that says about our relationships. Are we really living in community if we're not close enough to another human being to engage in a healthy, love and grace-filled conversation about the areas we need to grow? If we don't have that, and I, I, I'm friends, I don't always have that, and I, I struggle to find it even right now in my life. But if we don't, what does that say about the level of authentic relationships we have in our life? In fact, I've found trying to find accountability partners is a lot like dating. You start out with initial, a lot of initial awkward conversations. A lot of the relationships don't work out, but if you keep going, you might find someone. <laughs> and this is how it's been in my journey of trying to find people who are at the same kind of place and have the same perspective and, and can, it could be a healthy, life-giving relationship where we engage in authentic, tough conversation about the things that God is doing in our life. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. We're gonna sing a song that is, a, is especially close to my heart. It speaks to the first grace that we talked about. It speaks to the idea that God is drawing us and, and that we can come exactly as we are, no matter who you are or what you've done. I wanna end there because I wanna remind us that we have much work to do 
on our lives and in the areas where God is maybe pricking you even now as you wrestle with some of these questions and other questions in your life, we have much work to do, but, it, but we can't lose sight of the fact that God has accepted us and ch- is willing to change us, that God loves us exactly who we are right now. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. And that God wants us to move into authentic, grace and forgiving filled relationships where we can have honest conversation. That's our hope. That's my hope for you. That's a hope for our community as well. So with that, let's pray. God, we come before you. We know that you're able to do far more than we could ever think or imagine. You're able to work in our lives in ways that we could um, never begin to imagine. And that we aren't meant to do it alone, that you have called us to be in community, to be in relationship, and to, to be honest and open, and to be so confident of your love for us and your grace for us that we're willing to engage in conversation with other people who are just as confident of your grace and your love that we might grow together. We trust that you can, in fact, do anything, that nothing is impossible for your grace through the power of your Holy Spirit to change us. So let us rest in your love that we might be changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may stand for our closing song.